In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, We're going to start a little differently today. Don't get mad. I'm going back. Okay. Which orange circle is bigger? You see up there? Which one looks bigger? You think they're the same size? Okay. Which black circle is bigger? Do they look like they're the same size? Do they, Kathy? Do they look like they're the same size? This one looks bigger? What do you think, Zach? That looks bigger? Ellie, which black circle looks bigger? They look like the same size. I should have practiced with them. What about these tables? Which one is bigger? What? They're upside down. Well, I mean, that doesn't change how big or small they are. Which, which table looks bigger? The one on the right. My right or your right? Your right. Okay. No, I can't come there, Levy. What do you think? Which table looks bigger? Any final guesses? These tables are the same size. The orange circles are the same size. The black circles are the same size. But your eyes seem to tell you differently because of how our brain puts together contextual information. Well, there's a step there. Like, like the space around each of the center circles, or the size of the circles that surround the orange one in the middle. Just so those who are watching online could see. Did you follow me all the way down there? Or were you able to? Did you get, the, you get all these? All right, great. Your eyes tell you one thing, but reality is not always what it appears to be, is it? Mark is a three-act gospel. Chapters 1 through 8 take place in Galilee. And the big idea there is, who is Jesus? Mark 11 through 16, kind of the second, or the last final chunk, Act 3, takes place in Jerusalem, where Jesus is betrayed, arrested, abandoned, tortured, killed, and buried and where he is raised from the dead by God's mighty power. That's how Jesus becomes king. In the middle of Mark's gospel, in the later part of chapter 8 through chapters 9 and 10, they're on the way. They're on the way. And the question, if you had to just choose one, to put over that whole middle section of Mark's gospel is what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? Mark was the scribe of St. Peter, who our church is named after. Mark is like Peter's eyewitness account dictated to John Mark. In the first eight chapters, 
Peter tells us, Mark tells us, I'm just going to say Mark from now on so that's not confusing, but remember, this is important a little bit later that this is Peter's eyewitness account of these events. Jesus is healing people. He's casting out demons. He's preaching the good news with authority. Everybody wants to be around him all the time. They find out where he is, and at the end of the Sabbath day, at sunset, they figure out, oh, he's at the house of Simon. And so the whole town gathers around him, and they bring out all of the demon-possessed and all of the sick and all of the mentally unwell and everybody with any kind of affliction because wherever Jesus is, there is healing and there's power. On their way to Jerusalem, Jesus makes it clear, though, that what's about to happen may surprise and disturb them. But it's all part of the plan. In this middle section of Mark's Gospel, Jesus has three conversations. The first one is where Peter makes this confession. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, yes, you are right, Peter. And then, like five minutes later, Jesus tells them that we're going up to Jerusalem where I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and I'm going to, be, I'm going to suffer at their hands. I will be crucified and on the third day I'll be risen again. And Peter says, no way. Nothing like that is going to happen to you. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me. You know what he calls him? Satan. Get behind me, Satan. It's satanic to reject Jesus' plan to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. That's the first time he predicts his death. A little bit later in Mark 9, after our reading from this morning, Jesus again predicts his death, and he says, the greatest in the kingdom, if you want to be the greatest, you must become the least. You've got to welcome little children, and if you don't receive the kingdom like these little children do, you won't receive it at all. And then later in Mark 10, Jesus predicts his death a third time. There it is, that number three. And Jesus teaches about serving others. And that culminates with Jesus saying, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I did come to be your king, but I didn't come to be a king who is served by everybody else. I came to give up my life. He predicts his death three times in this middle section, and it's right here that Mark places the account of Jesus' transfiguration. Jesus predicts his death three times. And then in the middle of all of that, he is transformed, transfigured. This is kind of a mysterious thing. Transfiguration Sunday is always observed the final Sunday before Lent. It's the final Sunday in the season of Epiphany. And in this Epiphany season, right, this is from right after Christmas formally ends all the way up until the start of Lent, we are celebrating how Jesus was made manifest to the world. Epiphany itself is always on January 6th, and it's always like a Thursday. Well, not, maybe not always a Thursday. I got that part wrong. But it's always January 6th, because it's always a set number of days after Christmas. And that's typically when this, we celebrate the arrival of the Magi. Just as a reminder, the Magi weren't there at the birth. They arrived later. Maybe when Jesus was like two years old when the Magi arrived. And these, these foreign kings sort of embody or represent all nations of the earth. They came from afar and bowed down and paid reverence to this infant toddler king, Jesus. Then the first Sunday in the season of Epiphany is when we always celebrate the baptism of our Lord. 
And what that Sunday shares in common with this Sunday is the Father's endorsement of Jesus. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That's from Mark 1, when Jesus was baptized. And then today, in the account of the transfiguration, a cloud overshadows them. A voice from the cloud says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The first time at Jesus' baptism, remember, Jesus was the only one who heard that voice. Jesus was the only one who saw heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. This time, in the transfiguration, everybody there hears and sees. The Father speaks to you, to me, to all of us. And it's not just a voice, but the voice speaks out of a cloud, which is how God spoke to Moses in Exodus 33 and the people of Israel right after they left Egypt. They gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and the cloud, the Lord came down in cloud and smoke, thunder, lightning, the sound of a trumpet. This glorious experience of God's presence on Mount Sinai was also something that Elijah enjoyed during his career as the capital P prophet. And who appears beside Jesus when Jesus is transfigured on this mountain but Moses and Elijah. And this is why Peter suggested that they build tents. Because when you encounter God's presence on the mountaintop, that's what you do. That's what Israel always does. They camp down at the base. All right, we're going we're gonna to hang out here. Until this glory moves, we're not going anywhere. We're going to stay right here. All of my problems are feeling pretty far away right now. It's good that we're here. And Peter admits also, right? <laughs> when it says, for he didn't know what to say. This is Peter's own admission. I didn't know what to say. We were all terrified. So what does Mark say about Jesus' appearance now? That he glowed with a dazzling radiance? Was Jesus' face glowing, according to Mark? No. No. It might have been, but Mark doesn't point that out. Mark says something about Jesus' clothes. His clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Remember that clothing was invented why? Under what circumstances? Confirmation kids in Miss Leanne's class. You ought to remember this. Kinley, I'm not looking at you. Don't worry. You can, you don't, you can stop shooting daggers up here at me. God invented clothing at what point? In the Garden of Eden. Were Adam and Eve made originally to wear clothes? No. At what point were they clothed? When they sinned and they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. God gave clothing to humanity to cover the shame of our sin. Even since ever, sorry, since the fall of Adam and Eve, even our most righteous actions are still stained with sin that comes from inside of us. It's like a stain that we cannot get out that bleeds on to everything we do in our lives. You ever wash a brand new bright red pair of socks with uh, your white undershirts like I have? You know what happens? There's, uh, we call it dye transfer. And it's not great. That's like what our sin does to even the most righteous things in our lives. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, Isaiah says. 
But Jesus, through his death as a ransom for us, he gives us this ability for our clothing to be made dazzling white. Far whiter than any earthly bleach could accomplish. Revelation chapter 7, the apostle John has this vision of the church triumphant believers who have died persevering in their faith in Jesus and they're waving palm branches and they're clothed in white. And somebody asks John in this vision, hey, who are all these people? And John says, "Uh, why are you asking me? Sir, you know. And he says to me, then in Revelation 7, 14, it reads like this. Then he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. Clothing originally given to cover the shame of sin is now dazzlingly white. Curiously, just like Jesus' clothing is described in the account of the transfiguration. When there's no sin to cover up, clothing takes on a new purpose. It shines with the glory of perfect righteousness and holiness. In the new heavens and the new earth, we are not going to be naked. It's not going to be like a return to the Garden of Eden. We are going to be clothed with garments of holiness that forever into eternity declare the praise of the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We will never, ever, ever, ever forget what Jesus did for us, and we're going to see it and remember it every time we look at each other because we're going to be dazzling white, clothed not to cover the shame of our nakedness, the shame of sin, but to display the glory of God that he has given to us. And so the transfiguration of our Lord is a preview of this for us, right? A wondrous type. O vision fair of glory that the church may share. Jesus is transfigured. It's a vision of what we are going to share with him. This isn't just a thing that Jesus gets to enjoy. You all, if you hang on to the end, as the scriptures say, persevere. Basically, if you don't jump out of the ark of the church that Jesus brought you into by his blood, You are going to be just like that someday. And yet, remember that we started out placing the transfiguration into its larger context within the book of Mark. Right? This isn't the end of the story. Jesus was incarnate. He came down for us humans and for our salvation. And the story doesn't end with his glorious transfiguration. And then he comes down in power, shining like the sun destroys all of his enemies, snaps his fingers and makes our sin go away. That's not the way this ends. What does Jesus predict to his disciples three times in this part of Mark's gospel? His death and resurrection. And what is it that the Father tells Peter, James, and John to do on the mountaintop? He says, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. As soon as the father says, listen to him, everything snaps back to normal. Moses and Elijah are gone. The cloud is gone. Jesus closed. His appearance returns to normal. The purpose of the display of Jesus' glory on the mountaintop and the endorsement of the heavenly father for Jesus, the son, 
was to prove the authority of Jesus' word. And in context, specifically his word that he came to serve, not to be served, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many in Jerusalem, where he was going to be betrayed and abandoned and tortured and killed and on the third day rise again to prove that it had been accomplished. The glory wasn't the point. The glory was a revelation of his authority and his identity as God's son, so that what he was predicting, and then when that prediction came to pass, we would all understand that that was all part of the plan, rather than what it appeared to be. Because what did it appear to be when Jesus went to Jerusalem? He was rejected by the religious authorities. He was betrayed by one friend and then abandoned by the rest. He suffered injustice in some kangaroo court. He suffered horribly, had his very humanity destroyed over a prolonged period of time in his torture and crucifixion. He suffered a wretched death alone, nailed to a cross. And what did that look like? What did that appear to be? Defeat. All of their hopes coming to an end. Everyone who thought maybe this was finally the time when God would deliver his people. All those, right, the parents whose children had been brought back either from death or from the brink of death by Jesus' word. All those who had had their shame melted away by Jesus' kind voice his gentle touch, the power with which he healed people. Everybody who knew of him, who had started to trust in him, who believed in him because they had done something for them. They watched him be slaughtered. And some of them might have cheered for it. It looked like meaninglessness, like chaos, like evil. But what was it actually? It was victory. It was the accomplishment of God's plan of redemption. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. The author of life entered into death in order to destroy death forever for all those who believe. In the rejected, despised, abandoned, betrayed, tortured, slain Son of Man dwelled all the fullness of God. And God was pleased through this public slaughter and execution to reconcile all creation, things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, to himself, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. And that's why God said to Peter, James, and John, listen to him not look at him. Don't trust your eyes with what's about to happen. Listen to what he says, because he said three times, I am going to be killed, but I will rise again. And he told Peter, James, and John on their way down the mountain, don't tell anybody about this until after I'm raised from the dead. Because what do you think would happen to the rest of the the, the apostles? (laughs) You won't believe what we just saw. That would, that would break them. Your eyes tell you one thing about your sin. That you've sinned too much and you can't be forgiven. 
Jesus' word to you tells you another thing. Your eyes will tell you something about this world, that it's hopeless, that there's no point in sharing the gospel, that people just reject it. The pastors can serve the Lord faithfully and people can be brought to salvation and then a grenade of sin goes off and the name of God is blasphemed because of them. So what's the point? Anyway, Jesus tells you another thing. I will build my church on the confession that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Your eyes will tell you something about the power of darkness in your heart, in your life, in the lives of your children, in the lives of people in your family that you're concerned about. Jesus tells you something else. You can't always trust your eyes, but you can trust Jesus. Because like we sang, in him, there is no darkness. Christians, we don't get a promise that we get to walk an easy road. We are called to walk through darkness. We are called to follow our master on the way of the cross. And we will suffer and be rejected, be despised and abandoned. If not suffering those things personally, then they will happen to people we love. And we feel like we might never be the same. But we can persevere because we trust that Jesus walked that road first. May that line from I want to walk as a child of the light stick with you. In this dark world, I want to see the brightness of God. I want to look at Jesus. The promise is one day we will. But until then, we've got to trust our ears, not our eyes. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The peace of God that passes all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.